Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Anyone who's listened to this program over the last 24 years or so knows we cover the issue of housing and housing in Baltimore a lot and have since the third show we did in 1993, which was a town meeting between public housing residents and then housing commissioner Dan Henson uh, under Mayor Kurt Smoke. And it seems that from all the coverage we've done over these years, that things have gone, have not gotten better, I think have gone from, gotten worse. Gotten worse for many residents in the city who attempt to um, maintain a roof over their heads. Well, Doug Donovan, uh, along with Jim Mirabella at The Sun, produced this incredible series uh, called Dismissed about the housing crisis in Baltimore. It was a very powerful investigative series uh, that uh, when I read, I was just very taken with in terms of the depth of it and the humanness of it. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Doug is in the studio. Good Thanks to have for you. having Welcome. me. Welcome. Good to have Thanks you here. Kind words. Thank you. Uh, and we're also joined by Althea saunders Rainier, who is director of the Center for Working Families at Bon Secure Works, uh, Bon Secure Community Works. Excuse me. Althea, welcome. Thank you, and good morning. Zafar Shah is with us, who is attorney for at the Public Justice Center. Zafar, good to have you in the studio. Thanks for inviting me. And as always, in these discussions in the studio is Jeff Singer, who is founder of Healthcare for the Homeless and a continuing advocate and teaches now at the Maryland School of Social Work. An honor. Thank you. Good Mark. to have you here. And you all can join us out there at 410-319-8888. You can send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. Tweet us at Mark Steiner. But do join in. Perhaps you have your own stories about housing in your family, in your community, uh, what you think. But this is... Doug Donovan, let's talk, A, about what motivated the series, and, and B, what you learned, what you walked away with. Well, this has always been an issue in Baltimore, you know, looking back at the, what was it, the Baltimore plan from, like, the 1950s. Did you ever right. see that video? Yes. I mean, that's the founding of Housing Court, and you have the same sort of uh, things playing out back in the 1950s, trying to fix um, uh, slum conditions through a, a legal process uh, that's supposed to give tenants rights. PJC, the Public Justice Center, did a report, what, two years ago, I think, right? right? right. On rent court and the way the process moves so quickly. And uh, well, I'll have Zoffer explain it a little bit more. But that really sort of piqued my interest in, you know, what does justice look like in the housing court system? And surprisingly, there's really no data for the rent court eviction side of things because they just, everything's on paper everything. So we couldn't really do a deep dive uh, data-wise into the rent court process, but we decided to look at the rent escrow process, which is where tenants can bring complaints against landlords. Uh, and that that data does exist on the Maryland Judiciary Case Search and using um, the Maryland Volunteer Lawyers Service put together uh, a database that we worked with to then do a, an examination and analysis to see how tenants were faring in the rent escrow court process. And then we sat in dozens and dozens of cases for s almost a year, watching you know how judges uh, handle these cases, how landlords were winning um, you know most of the uh, the money that's put into escrow while uh, repairs are made at a home, landlords were getting the bulk of that money back, and because tenants aren't represented by lawyers. You know, you see a lot more favorable results for landlords than you do for tenants because tenants just have to exert their rights because, A, they're not lawyers. They're not familiar with the legalities of the process. Um, you know, there's certain issues that would come up before judges where you would expect the judge to at least acknowledge the tenant's rights. Not all judges. You know, there's just some judges. Uh, and because the landlord has an attorney there with them, the landlord's attorney is able to advocate for them more zealously than a tenant can advocate for themselves. So there's a lot of disparity there, and I think the, the judiciary recognizes that, and they're doing things, working with Public Justice Center to try to adjust it. But you know, th these issues have been going on for years and years. Uh, I wonder, if, 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 let me do this correctly. Is it Zafar or Zafar? Zafar. Zafar. Okay, good means I pronounced it correctly. No problem. Zafar. So, so talk, pick up on where Doug just left off here, just about the situation in the courts. I mean, I, and I, I again, I harken back to 30-some years ago, 40 years ago, long time ago, when <laughs> we were organizing in South Baltimore and we had a thing called the Tenants Union Group, which helped change a lot of laws when it came to the housing court. 
Um, it was the first interracial tennis union in Baltimore. But then, um, you know, we argued cases for the housing court. Your lawyer, you didn't have to be a lawyer. But there's always been this kind of dearth or depth of representation for poor people in those courts. How much has that changed? How much can you all do? And, when, and what's your analysis of that? Well, I think what with the Sun series plus Public Justice Center's report, which is called Justice Diverted from December 2015, what what connects the these two sort of investigations uh, is the question of uh, whether tenants can actually use the laws on the books. Can they use the court's uh, pro se or self-represented system, um, which uh, in the abstract and in, on paper looks like a system that you should be able to use. Like if you just figure it out, you come to court, you do what you're supposed to do as a tenant, um, something good will come out of it. And what both series or what the series and uh, our data show too is that there's just, um, there really is a systemic institutionalized um, tilt in the system. And so the, the objective for Public Justice Center was to use data to identify what's causing that tilt. Um, not only are tenants largely un unrepresented to, I think about only about 3% to 5% of tenants, and we're talking about 150,000 cases a year, that tiny percentage are, are folks who have a lawyer. Um, but for the folks who uh, even know their rights, they struggle because they encounter a setup at the court that diverts them from asserting uh, their story. They can't tell the facts, they can't tell uh, their view uh, because they encounter, for instance, agents in the hallway telling them to settle. Um, they encounter uh, the judge telling them what the issues are. For instance, please don't talk about everything else, just talk about what you owe. Um, and then they they also get uh, this is the judge talking right. They also get information just from looking at how the proceedings happen in front of them when they come to court. They see that very few other people are trying to defend themselves, and then the ones who do are just so unsuccessful. So when you couple that with what I think everyone on the street knows, right? People who've lived in Baltimore for a long time know that. Um, it's probably not worthwhile to come to court. I mean, that's an unfortunate, I think, cultural story uh, for the court to have to deal with, is that there's a, a significant lack of trust uh, in the process that impedes a lot of people from coming. So you take all that together and you have uh, this, the backdrop for bad numbers. We saw in a Public Justice Center's study that um, – Almost 80% of tenants who come, come to rent court have a severe defect in their property. 60% had the property defect and had complained about it. And yet we only saw 25% of folks actually try to dispute their case. And then only 13%, uh, sorry, actually 13 out of 300 folks that we studied um, actually succeeded in getting their claim um, discussed with the judge. You know, so they, they lasted that morning to, to talk to a judge about but their very, problem. Very, very quickly, I mean, there's a question I'm going to get to the other guests here, but, mm -hmm. so, but why? I mean, why is that the case? Can I think it's a I mean, I think it really boils down to a matter of representation, right? I mean, they don't have lawyers. There's not a, a real robust system or there's no funding for a system to provide them lawyers. New York City is providing like $90 million next year. I think it's up to $60 million to provide the right to counsel to people in housing court. Like and a civil Gideon. Yeah. So I think, I think the stats I saw is that representation went from about 1% three years ago to about 27% in terms of number of people represented in housing cases. And the evictions fell by 24%. Because when you have representation, when you have lawyers there asserting your rights in a way that the law is written, you can, you can avoid evictions when you're holding the landlords more accountable in a way that may prevent that eviction. No, I want to turn it off you. And, and so in addition to that is the family. Uh, generally, families who have low to moderate income, time off from work is not paid, 
And so uh-huh. the system, and this goes back to what both guests have already said, the process of the courts, you know, oftentimes they'll come to us and say, this is my and first the, time. Us? The, the families that come um, for uh, eviction assistance. To your program. Uh, to our program. And so, um, and the landlord does not encourage them to go to court. They say, you don't have to go to court. And so that's the first step right there where they have in some ways given up some of their rights. And so the default judgment is always in the case of landlord who has some uh, lawyer or some representative there uh, for themselves. And so now the family is combating that. And so that is generally followed by another notice that they don't understand how it works. And that's about moving them through the process of an actual eviction. So one of the things that Jeff always thought about this, again, I'm going to come back to something I said earlier, which is that, that you do not have to be an attorney to litigate a case and defend somebody in housing court, right? So, from my understanding, I mean, you have, because there were people at the Public Justice Center who did that, who were not attorneys, who represented clients in housing court. There's, right? The, the only technical distinction to make is that they have to be supervised. Supervised by an attorney. Right, by an attorney from a legal services organization. So, But a landlord doesn't need an attorney. That's right. A landlord doesn't need an attorney. A landlord does not need an attorney. A tenant does need an attorney. And I, I think that distinction of like as long as they're supervised you still need a lawyer though. That's so, the so, so what right. I'm saying is yeah, here, yeah. What, what, what popped in my head all the time around this is what we inched towards a number of times in Baltimore but never got there was this an idea that why well, can't name them pick a number I don't know 100 200 150 people as housing advocates that actually represent people in our court system since it's not going to be lawyers for the most part they're going to get enough lawyers to do that. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's just what, what prevents something like that from happening? I don't actually know the answer to that question, but... I, you, you, I thought you had answers to all questions. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I try. You, our friend Ralph Moore yeah. had a letter to the editor published a couple of days ago in response to your series and said, I'm among those people who was trained to represent folks in housing court. So there has been training, and PJC and some other legal aid and some other organizations have been involved in that sort of thing. Why the legal organizations probably don't have the staff to be the supervisors, because there has to be a supervisor of record, so I guess that's a, a big part of the problem. Um, and then the landlords have the money to hire their agents, and the judges often defer to the agents of the landlords. I guess political will is a big thing as well. Like If you don't have the leadership of the city talking about ways to fund that type of training, then you're not going to get it. You're not going to have uh, the type of systems you have in New York. And in D.C., they're talking about doing something similar. Uh, Boston, the Boston mayor uh, helped introduce a whole slew of legislation statewide that would provide for council and housing court for tenants as well. Um, so if you don't have your leadership in the city talking about this as sort of a priority, priority number one, really, because as we talked a little bit earlier about how housing underpins more ills, that you know, if you're not talking about it, then you're not addressing it. And if you're not funding it, then you're not working toward fixing it. I do want to get to the phone, Chairman. I'll think I may come to you. I mean, throw this idea out and, and let you jump in. I mean, one of the things the article pointed out was that the Baltimore District Court issued 282,000 eviction, more eviction orders than they did in the study in 2013. Nearly 28,000 formal evictions took place, which means you're talking, let's say, to be generous, we're talking three times that number in terms of human beings. Yes. Maybe more who live in those homes in place of being evicted. You're talking about possibly one-third uh, or, or a sixth of the population of Baltimore or so that's being evicted from their homes every year and mo- even more who are threatened by that. I mean, and then we wonder why neighborhoods are destabilized and why kids aren't doing well in school. Did you point out in your article about what ha- how it affects children in, in schools? I mean, this is a huge issue that that is beyond just a housing court. And 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 that's that's the one thing that we have to look at is is what it does to families. And so when we talk about uh, a strategic plan of a bond support is to co-create healthy communities, and the underpin of all of this is housing. A, a great deal, almost 90% of the calls are about housing. And even as they're coming for assistance, it is, do you know where I can get more affordable housing? And so unless we change the dynamic 
uh, it's going to be difficult. We see, you know, families are very transient in Baltimore is the one thing that we've seen. You know, they're constantly moving. They've learned how to be on the move all the time. And that cannot create healthy communities if we can't stop that. And that goes along with the fact that families are challenged by the system overall. Because here again, they have to take off a lot of time from work to find the necessary money and resources to put together so that they can stay in the home. Because we know that families are far more successful if they can stay where they are rather than moving around. And that is a very big challenge for families to be able to stay in the home that they are. So you find families moving two, three times, you know, in a period of five years. And so think about what that does to the children, the mother, the father, and the instability. And we are fortunate enough to be able to follow families for over a year. And because we have this relationship with families, and as we work with them throughout that year, just as a way to, to ensure that they can stay stable, we find that right after our assistance, they're back in the same place. But because the same things have not changed, incomes have not changed, the housing situation has not changed. And when you're looking at families that pay almost 75% of their income for rent, there's not a whole lot we can get from them. And, and what you just said, Althea, is really important. and something I think, Doug, you pointed out in your article that we can talk about for a minute, then we'll open the phones. You all can jump in. But, I mean, is that you painted very human portraits of people who are caught up in this system of eviction and having to move because they can't afford their rent, what happens to their children. But almost all the people you talk to, except for a couple perhaps, Worked. Right. Min low minimum wage jobs, but people all worked. Yep. It's not like we're talking about unemployed people, people on quote unquote welfare, on the public dole, as people like to say, uh, which is an absurd thing, even. But, but anyway, that, that, that these are people who have jobs, can't afford to take off time from jobs because they'll lose these jobs in nursing homes, wherever. So. Well, you go to Althea's program and you sit there, and folks are there in their work uniforms. uniforms. Yes. They're in their uniforms. They're either going to work after or they're coming from work. Yeah, these are people who are trying to make ends meet on very little income, and it's hard when the rents are so high. You know, it's just that's the that's the reality and the constant movement and the destabilization that comes with that is something I feel like a lot of other cities are talking about politically. Like, like I said, New York, Boston, Washington, San Francisco had a pilot program that was pretty, pretty large in terms of providing attorneys in housing court. And I don't even feel like we were having the discussion. And then, you know, but, you know, you have groups like Public Justice Center, They're, they've been working with the judiciary over the past year or so and figuring out ways in this work group to improve the process. But then I think you also have a, a judiciary that's very non-transparent. So I think you have judges who are just not held accountable for what they do, A, because you don't have lawyers in the courtroom to hold them accountable or to appeal. No one ever really appeals these cases. So how are the judges who are not applying the laws as they are written on the books, which as they're written, they seem pretty good. If they're not applying them, who's holding them accountable? These are district court judges who are appointed to 10-year terms. Um, you know, by the governor, or confirmed by the Senate. So who in the General Assemblies, you know, mostly lawyers, who's going to hold them accountable? I mean, are going to do anything to survey litigants when they leave court? Like a lot of others, 20 states to do these surveys to determine if litigants are uh, satisfied that they received a fair hearing, regardless of the outcome. Did you receive a fair hearing? Are we doing that kind of surveying in the district court? I don't know. Not I don't, that I know of. Yeah. yeah. I, I think... They should be holding themselves accountable, and we should be holding them accountable more. But really, the best way to do that is having representation who knows what the law is and if it's being applied properly and then appealing it. I mean, one of the things that struck me about, about the talking about our courts and what's happening in Baltimore and what's happening in other cities is all the cities you mentioned, what's different about Baltimore is Baltimore has such a huge population of disenfranchised, yes. poor working people as compared to New York City or some other place, right? Yeah. Yes. May I put some numbers on, on that statement? Um, because y your work, Doug, did give us the faces of, of the folks. There's statistics that are, I think, horrifying. We've talked about on the show before. There's 92,186 households in Baltimore who can't pay their rent every month. This is just an enormous problem. Um, there's 62,000 households in Baltimore with incomes below, this is a little jargon, 30% of AMI, which means their incomes are below approximately $26,000 a year. 
They don't. How many again? Say there's 61,835 households in Baltimore whose incomes are below $26,000 a year. There is no housing in the city they can afford except for public housing and federally subsidized housing. Now, we know that uh, we've reduced the supply of public housing from about 18,000 units. In two years, it'll be about 4,000 units. Mm -hmm. And yes, there are some Section 8 certificates, but not nearly enough. Uh, less than one in four people have, have access to that. So fundamentally, we have two problems. We have a court system that could work but doesn't work and needs attention, and PJC's been working on that. I can't help wondering if Doug's articles had appeared before the General Assembly session, if PJC's attempt to change the rent court situation wouldn't have been successful, but in any event, yeah. maybe next we'll year. We'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> and so very quickly, what, what did PJC attempt to do that got nowhere in the General Assembly? Well, what the past two years in a row, um, we've had legislation, um, you know, very much led by renters' priorities to address rent court. And, uh, you know, the first year, 2016, was a comprehensive bill focused really on Baltimore City. And that bill, um, you know, for all its complexity, went straight to a summer study. We had an eight-month-long uh, legislative committee uh, made up of you know the judiciary, tenant advocates, landlord advocates, clerks, social services. You know everyone was involved in that that you would want to be involved. And um, you know it's telling that uh, of you know a a wide spectrum of possible reforms, there were only four or five that everyone could agree on. And so these really lowest common denominator reforms were along the lines of um, provide at least seven days notice of a trial for, for a tenant. So if they get the summons, they have at least a week, um, a calendar week before they have to show up to court. Um, make sure that landlords who haven't complied with the lead law, the, the, lead ha the lead risk and housing law, make sure that they can't prosecute a case in court. Mm. Um, th these were basics, mm. and so we put those basics into a bill this session, uh, sponsored by Delegate Rosenberg, and it passed the House. Unfortunately, it died in the Judicial Proceedings uh, Committee in the Senate. Um, but you know, we're we're blazing uh, to go next year uh, and, and try to complete that. What's well, really kind of a small bill, but. You know, the, the problem is that when you're dealing with the, the landlord lobby and just the entrenched ideas about um, the need to not give tenants a leg up on anything, right? There's this idea that tenants are going to get advantages if they have equal rights or a fair hearing. That, you know, that type of cultural sentiment plus the, the money behind um, the, the landlord industry really just makes the the simplest reforms the highest hurdle. And, but I think what we, we can really hope for is that through conversations based on the Sun's work that you know people start to come together uh, outside of lawyers and you know these grass tops um, realms of, of policy making right and start having those conversations in the community about how to assert their power. So well, what was interesting about that bill is that the Maryland Multifamily Housing Association supported it. They're the main landlord lobby, right? They are. I mean, at least in, in this uh, region. Right, in this right? region. But unfortunately, other landlords with probably equal amounts of influence didn't support it and, and came out to oppose it. That's right. Yeah, so, we have to take a short break. We'll, we'll come right back. Um, we have, do have to take a short break. Come back at 410-319-8888. Leo, you're the first caller up. We want to come to your phone call when we come back from this break. Uh, as we look at the Sun series dismissed about our housing courts and housing in Baltimore, uh, we want to hear your thoughts and ideas. We want to hear your own personal experiences. Maybe you've had them. Family members, people you know. What you think are the solutions to this? Where do we go? 410-319-8888. You can send an email to talk at org. Tweet us at Mark Steiner, but do join in. We'll be right back. And as I said, Leo, the first caller up, we're going to come to your call. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. There was a really, I think, important series done, Sun Investigates, called Dismissed, uh, written by Doug Donovan and Jean Marabella, uh, about our housing court system, the evictions in Baltimore, how low-income people are under constant threat of having to move their homes uh, because they cannot afford their rent or being evicted. 
um, really kind of through the eyes of the people themselves, also giving voice to landlords and other people who are involved in this process. So we are talking about that this hour. We are here with Doug Donovan, who uh, wrote the most recent installment um, uh, with this Miss series, along with G. Marabella. Althea Saunders-Rainier, who is director of the Center for Working Families at Bon Secures Community Works. Jeff Singer, who's founder of Healthcare for the Homeless. Now teaches at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. And Zafra Shah, who is attorney for the Public Justice Center. Our number here, 410-319-8888. I promise to go right to the phones, but Althea, you want to make a quick comment and go right to Leo. Yes. Um, as we talk about the landlords and, and what they have is how do we empower our, our tenants, our residents, um, so that they know what the process is if they should even have to confront um, the court system. Uh, a lot of this is when they get an eviction notice, it, it's a first time. And so they have no idea what the process is. And how do we educate them up front rather than, you know, once they get that notice? And I think that a long, uh, not long ago, um, Bonsacore Community Works in coordination with um, Operation Reach Out Southwest, a community organization, looked at the housing in southwest Baltimore and found a lot of absentee landlords. And so that's another big problem. Uh, they have these rundown homes, and, and again, we talked all about the process in the courts, where there's nobody taking care of it, and these tenants are afraid and fearful and, you know, having to up and move. I mean, we have seen pictures from, from tenants and residents of, of infestation that is just unreal that they live with. So how do we really have uh, empower the tenant before the process, not once they're in the process? And that's a lot of the problem. Let me go to the phone, here, and I want to explore just what, what changes this and how do we get there? I mean, we think about a little funny story aside, I'll tell you and our listeners. Again, when we were organizing for the Tenants Union Group, one of the things we did was um, to uh, go into people's homes and uh, catch rats and, and uh, cockroaches and bring them to the landlord's doorstep and leave them there in the morning for them to... <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is a gift from one of your homes. Which, wow. And just, it's theater, but it's theater got people's attention. Yeah, right? I would say so. Or we did things that were highly illegal, like uh, if they evicted somebody, we would wait, move everybody back in the house, and change the locks. So they had to go through the whole process again. So, I mean, there are some theatrical actions you can take to wake people up. But let's go to the phones here, 410-319-8888. Leo in Bolton Hill, you're on the air. Welcome. Yes, good morning, Mark Steiner. Leo Burroughs, how are you doing, my man? I'm doing great, and good, good morning to your guests and everyone else. Uh, you know, I contend that illegal evictions are instruments of oppression. And needless to say, rent control is non-existent, and it needs to come into existence, and that's going to take a lot of hard work. Gentrification seems to be what it's all about, at least from my perspective. And, of course, you're promoting homelessness at the same time. And the conspiracy that seems to exist between the sheriff's office and, and the landlord's is subject to or should be subject to grand jury investigations. What am I talking about? The process in terms of accountability says, and I think it's codified in law, that you can't evict someone without the sheriff's deputies being present. And in too many instances, that's not the case. Lots are being changed on people's doors. Uh, their possessions are being thrown out into the street in too many instances. And the landlords are not going to jail as a consequence. And maybe we need to have the sheriff, John Anderson, of this city go to jail or some of his deputies as a consequence. The goal, as far as I can determine, and I'm looking at the Greater Baltimore Committee and the Baltimore Development Corporation and others, it seems to be that the goal is to get the poor people out of this city to the extent possible. Get rid of the poor folks. So you can bring in upper-income people, as espoused by Stephanie Rollins, Blake, and others, uh, long ago. We got to change. We got to provide a greater tax base, and the way to do that is to get rid of poor people by any means necessary. So, what are we going to do about enforcing the laws equitably and 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 knocking down, preventing the continuing conspiracies against poor people? The eviction rate which is outrageous, is consistent with the injustice rate in this city. That's why we have a consent decree. 
sounds like it's unrelated, but it's not unrelated when we look at $15 an hour minimum wage not being the order of the day. It should be, but the powers that be, including the mayor, including the rich white people who run this city, and the president of city council, nothing has changed here in the dynamic of justice. It needs to change. Leo, thank you so much. Thoughts on what Leo was saying? And I think that, you know, whether there's a conspiracy or not between the sheriff's department and um, and landlords, I mean, I think you can explore that. But whatever happens here because of what's happening lends folks to really want to believe that this stuff is going on because the situation is that horrendous for so many people in the city. What are your thoughts about what Leo said? You know, a few years ago, the, people of, Sh- the people of Chicago forced their sheriff to stop evicting families whose houses had been foreclosed. And we've thought of creating a campaign like that here just around evictions, but it it takes more organizing. And Leo can be part of that organizing. Um, I was at city council when a housing commissioner, long before Stephanie Rollins-Blake was involved, I'm talking about 25 years ago, a housing commissioner said, our goal, in fact, is to move poor people out of the city. We don't care where they go. We just don't want them. 25 years ago, you said? Uh, This was a housing commissioner who was a friend of yours, by the way. Um, But I'll say no more about that. That the city's current plan for housing enshrined in Baltimore Housing's latest consolidated plan is to create 979 units of affordable housing, 979, about 1% of what we need for the 92,000 households that can't pay their rent. And, and that's further exacerbated when you look at the, um, where the uh, grants are going in terms of uh, Section 8, you know, a lot of that is not even available in the city. There's this move to um, put these families in the counties where um, families who are challenged in the city where transportation, while it's not the best, it's at least here. You know how much more difficult it makes for families when they go to the counties. And so many of them think that that is a, a new area for them to go to. It's better living for their families. And then they get out there and realize that they can't sustain out there because of the cost the, and, and the support that they need that's not in the counties because it's too difficult. And so we, we see that. And so when you, when you do not put anything into a community, you can be guaranteed that there will be flight from the community. Yeah, I did a story on that last year, the Baltimore Regional Housing Partnership, which oh, essentially works right. like a you know regional housing authority. That all came out of the Thompson Housing Decree, creating these vouchers that allowed people to move to higher opportunity areas in the county. I mean, the research shows that they do the health outcomes are better for the kids, the schoolings are the schooling outcomes are better. So there is a philosophy to support that. That the research shows that moving to higher opportunity areas does provide people with more access to uh, jobs, uh, better schools, uh, lower crime. Those things are all supposed to have better impacts for the future and ending uh, the cycle of poverty. Um, But the other thing that the caller touched on, and you mentioned solutions, and this is a little bit of a plug, I guess, but part of our our series was funded by this Solutions Journalism Network, which is this nonprofit that's all focused on funding stories that try to generate exactly this type of conversation to get to where the solutions are, which is a it's a very innovative thing to do, I think. But code enforcement was another part of the first uh, first day story in terms of how do you hold landlords accountable who have been proven to be doing the wrong thing. And code enforcement, you know, they do thousands and thousands and thousands of inspections every year. And their main goal is to get properties back to code. You know, they're not really in the business of uh, penalizing landlords, you know, and that's that's their philosophy. Um, but we don't license all of the rental properties in Baltimore City, and therefore we don't inspect all of what the rental properties. What does it mean properties. to license all the rental? What does that mean? Uh, I think it's what three units and above are licensed, and that means they get an annual inspection. So at least there's some sort of oversight. But houses that have one or two units, like a typical row house, which make up, I think, the majority of uh, rental properties in the city don't have to be licensed, they have to be registered, but all that means is they have to pay the city to be registered so the, re- so the city knows who they are, what their address is, so in case they do have to take some sort of action, they know where to find the folks. But there are other, Baltimore County licenses, and you raise this in your report, they license all rental properties, right? They license, they have a license for uh, units one through six. 
right? Which in Baltimore city terms, those are the most problematic properties uh, in terms of- One through uh, six per building or one through six per landlord? Per uh, building. Per building. One um, per six units, right? Right, yeah. right, right. And so that after you get to six, I think multifamily complexes are, are considered a different class. But you know, if you tackled those small holdings companies within the, the smaller buildings in Baltimore City, you're talking about the ones that appear most in rent court. You're talking about the ones that have the, the most prevalence of housing defects that show up in rent escrow court. So, you know, the idea of licensing as a solution is what, what are the preventative measures that the, the city should be taking, that landlords should be taking so that they aren't um, in the court process and, and having to deal with litigation. Litigation isn't always a solution, and I'm saying that as a lawyer, right? <laughs> That's how strongly I believe that we, we have to move to this universal licensing and not only use right, what annual inspection. Let me take yeah. so, so, so let's say that for argument's sake, there was universal licensing for, mm -hmm. for uh, apartments one, one through six. Uh, what, no, you know, I, I, what, universal what, would mean all units. Okay, so what would that, yeah. so, okay, so what, what would that mean? What would that entail? How would that prevent what Doug covered in his piece, or you and G. Marabello did in your piece? How would that prevent that? Well, yeah, go ahead. Yes, a lot of folks, uh, in my experience, uh, doing rent escrow uh, are folks who moved into a property not knowing what the defects would be. They aren't, these aren't folks who have the time to do a walkthrough and consider the lease and they send right. the landlord a list of conditions they want repaired before they move in. They move in immediately, and probably uh, you know two months down the road, they're experiencing very harsh housing defects. Licensing with uh, an annual inspection requirement would mean that before someone moves in, there's already been preventative measures in place. So that there's been things that have been corrected in order to get the license renewed. Um, I think you have to go beyond just uh, a sort of perfunctory list of major problems and go uh, to some degree to the mechanical components of a property, kind of look behind the walls, so to speak, because there are often problems lurking that an inspector for the city can't catch uh, on, one, on one review. And the other thing is the licensing, a licensing program in some jurisdictions includes incentives so that if you opt in as a landlord, you opt into programs that require additional funds on your part or additional effort, you have some benefit, like less routine inspections uh, or a certificate type of program, some perks, right? And I think the city has to incentivize better landlording. Like you cannot, you, like some cities, you, you don't pay your licensing fee except every other year if you meet a certain grade. So you grade these properties like you would restaurants um, if they're right. universally licensed. So these one and two unit row houses that are rented out, which are the probably the biggest problem, they're the ones that aren't licensed, they're not inspected. And what they, I, you know, you could foresee like, well, how are we gonna fund more inspectors? Our inspectors are already overworked, but the way Baltimore County does it is they use private inspectors, they essentially privatize the process and put the onus on the landlords, correct? Uh, that the landlords have to essentially pay these list of pre-approved private inspectors who will come in and use what the county has dictated as a list of uh, conditions prior to getting your license. Um, and that's the way they do it out there to try to cover all their properties. So that's one solution that's out there. Other cities have landlord academies as well. And I know that the Maryland um, Multifamily Housing Association, they've uh, promoted that as well. They support a landlord academy because the property, you know, the professional property managers they're sullied by the, the, the landlords who are the problems. You know, you have these professional property managers who are doing the right things. They should be, benef they should be benefiting from being uh, the good landlords, but there's really nothing to incentivize them to do that. So, I mean, it seems that, that, that one of the issues here is that, and it's been this case for a while, for as long as I can remember, that a, a lot of the substandard housing in Baltimore are owned by men and women who make this investment in this housing because they think they're making an investment in housing for themselves by buying a house, which is, you know, um, and, and many of the people doing this are middle and working class people themselves who are buying these inexpensive places and, and, and don't have the money to deal with them. So, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a really strange <laughs> class dynamic in all this as well, yes. but who owns what and 
and then and then and what that inspection means. So what becomes the alternative? I mean, because that, that so. Let's talk a bit about that. Yes, the alternative. Um, you know, we'll go to Jeff and then go over Althea. Oh, I'm sorry. 150 years sorry. ago, uh, 150 years ago, uh, some philosopher <laughs> wrote that nowadays atheism is a relatively slight sin compared with the criticism of existing property relations. You might know who he that was, was born on May the fifth. This person, <laughs> Cinco de Mayo. I don't know who you're talking about. 150 <laughs> years ago. So there is a solution to this problem. The problem, really fundamentally, is that housing is a commodity. So if we decommodify housing, if we create a large social sector of housing, as they have in every other advanced industrial country, if we did that, we could eliminate a lot of these problems. You know, public housing is not necessarily the same stigma it is in Germany, in Austria, in France, in many other countries. No, not at all. In fact, they, in those countries, 25 to 40 percent of all the housing is owned by everyone, what we call public housing. In Vienna, as you know, more than 60 percent of all the housing is public housing. It's beautiful. They hire the best architects, and there's no stigma to living in it. So we need to refocus all of this. That's the fundamental solution to this problem, I think. And it's, it is a good point. There's these competing values um, in terms of who the landlords are and the city's interest in making sure that small landlords, that their rights are respected as well, that their investments are protected. Um, but that's what a landlord academy could get at. It would help these smaller landlords learn this business, like the professional property managers will tell you, it's a business. You have to run it every day. You can't just sort of set it and forget it and hope that, you know, hope for the best. Althea. Yes, and so there's there's a lot we can do on that side, but then there's the, you know, I always come back to the family. You, and so if we can have a system that they understand and there's a place that they can go to when they're looking for housing that says that this is already set up for them, then the, the chances are that when something is happening, they already know what it is they can do, and they have the support. And it's not just them fighting with a landlord, but it's a bigger system that they're working under in a way that they can have some support. Because right now, families don't feel like they have any support because they're fighting the landlord. And so they're scared and they're frightened. And so we need a system wherein everybody's accountable, you know, even the tenant. So, okay. I just wanted to add that, I mean, one of the... I think one of the root causes of the conditions issues uh, lasting into a tenancy is that a lot of these landlords we're talking about view the property as passive income. It's it's not only that they want to invest, they want to invest in something that they, they don't have to worry about. So instead of putting their money into a mutual fund or something like that, they say, oh, well, I'll, I'll do it with this house, right? And I'm not going to worry about it. And, and really the philosophy behind being the landlord is that they don't worry about the actual ins and outs of the property. You know, so, I can say as a, 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 a tax preparer th that when I see persons who have rental property that come in, that's exactly how they're looking at it. This is, this is another income stream for them. And their thinking is, and I can get this property and I'll have X amount of dollars income forgetting all about what it takes to have that. And I said, there's a responsibility that you have when you put this property in service. And nobody thinks about that responsibility. All they're thinking about, and you're absolutely right, is the income that they think they're going to derive from it. And so when the tenant doesn't pay, then there's the scream about the tenant's not paying, how am I to pay the mortgage, the water bill, and, and, and that's another thing that has come up and really put families in, in a bad place because now the water bill is a monthly bill and because they can't collect on water bills when you pay late rent and you haven't paid the water bill it's going to the water bill and so you're still late for rent because I can take you to court for rent it's hard to take you to court for the water bill it is upside down and twisted let's go to the phones <laughs> 410 Donna you're on the air welcome how you doing very well good morning um DC Washington DC has um requires all even residential private property owners, single family homes to get property management license. In order to rent out your property, you have to go get trained and get uh, and sit for a license to be a property management property manager for your individual property. And that's something that we need to do either statewide 
because, you know, the same situation happens all around the state, or just Baltimore City as a test policy. But I would not be able to rent out a property in D.C. without sitting for my property management. And if you don't, if you rent out a property without being a registered, licensed property manager, um, the state, um, you know, D.C. will take you to court. Why can't we have something like that where we actually have a property manager? People have to go get a property management license after they go through training. And then the land, the owners can, I mean, the tenants can go after their license and get their license suspended if they're not in compliance. And I wanted your guests to talk mm. about that, and I have to listen. Thank you. That's a really interesting question, Donna. Thank you. Uh, I talked to Attorney General Brian Frosch about this. Well, he brought this subject up, that he has supported legislation in the past for just that very thing to license, is it uh, licensed property managers? Um, But I think it's gone nowhere, right? That's right. Uh, How many times has it been introduced? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it was maybe two or three times. In the state legislature. In the state legislature. Frosch supports it. He thinks it would be, you know, a way to, you know, hold – people to a higher standard. I mean, guess who doesn't support it, but we'll do that later. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that, that is a problem. I mean, yeah. these bills property, do- property managers don't want to be considered debt collectors. Often part of their job as the property manager is to do the debt collection for the owner, right? But even aside from that component, property managers can be one of the most frustrating parts of a tenant's life because they show up sometimes out of nowhere. Uh, wholly unknown to the the actual tenant who had a previous relationship with the owner or a different property management company. And I think one of the benefits of Donna's idea is that uh, you could require property managers to have to identify themselves uh, proactively to the tenant, tell the tenant how to pay the rent, who to pay it to, when to pay it to, provide a new lease, provide some type of uh, certification to the tenant that the security deposit has transferred to the new company. I mean, these are all, or even just proof that there's a relationship, right? It's so basic, but this eludes so many tenants. They don't know that uh, WAS Property Management um, or Maryland Management, these companies that appear at court, they don't know that uh, there's a relationship between their landlord, the owner, and the new company. And so a lot of this stuff is so basic, but unfortunately it's it's not a law, and, and so it's, it's largely an unregulated practice. And I think, I think like, a lot of what we do today, um, a family should be able to go to the Internet, and I think the idea of a licensed uh, property manager um, is some way to put out there oh, this person's license has been revoked. And so at least looking at their properties makes you wonder, well, if their license is revoked, maybe those aren't the properties I should look at. But right now, a tenant has nowhere to go. They kind of ride around, they see a sign, and all they know is they they need to get out of this relationship. But right back to what you say, they don't even know that that property is also managed by the landlord they're trying to run from because it's a different property manager. That's that's another big element of the disparity is that, you know, landlords can go to court records or to tenant screening companies to determine, right you know, oh, this guy's faced eviction 10 times or has you know, been in rent escrow, so they're probably a problem tenant. But the tenants don't really have the ability in reverse to screen landlords to determine, oh, this landlord's been in escrow court 10 times. We tried to, you know, we took all the registration rental data in this in this in the city to look at who's registered as uh, rental owners, mm-hmm. and then we sort of looked at we took the database of all the addresses that have code violations, and then we merged the two databases to determine like who are the owners with the most violations in the code enforcement. And because there's so many different names of owners and LLCs, mm-hmm. it just didn't feel like it was a uh, it was not going to be an exercise that we could do and feel like it would be accurate and entirely fair, but it, it's still something there's, there's a city in Minnesota that does this type of transparency where they have code enforcement, they have registration, they have licensing, they have 911 calls, and they put it all into a database that the public can access. So you could research your landlord. Uh, and that's one sort of solution that we're exploring. You know, and that's, I'm glad you pointed those things out. A, I want people to understand, people need to hear what it takes to do an investigative report reporting right. is a lot of laborious work like you're describing kind of getting digging down to data to bring it out that you just have to then humanize with these stories which we really didn't get to much today which I'd like to come back to at some point with other people in the studio or out in the community and actually tell their stories so people can hear what life is like 
because to me that that was one of the most important pieces of your piece was knowing what people go through trying to live a life trying to take care of a family trying to keep a job keep food on the table keep lights on keep the rent paid buy food on minimum incomes and what people do to struggle just to survive who are working people in the city i think that's a story that that really needs airing that kind of to me would sheds light on a political dynamic that we have to push people have to push in Annapolis to change the nature of laws and begin to change the the, the, the relationships i think that's that's what this is a very powerful piece and i want to but did you somebody about to say something real quick so we're trying to get one more caller in should we try to get one more caller is Mark there? Mark, let's get your quick thought, Mark, before we go off the air. Mark? No, he's gone? Okay, well, let me just begin by thanking everybody for being here. I just want to... 30 seconds. Yeah, 30 seconds. I think that if, whether it's licensing, whether it's providing free attorneys, or even getting more emergency assistance for tenants who are caught up in, in these uh, dispossession stories, you have to have community power community-based power led by renters in order to make the changes happen. And I think that's the biggest thing lacking, whether it's in Annapolis or even in city council. We've got to get people mobilized. It's so hard for tenants because they are transient. They're, they're experiencing hyper-transients because of the eviction problem. If you're a homeowner listening, got to think about your block, your community, and how much more powerful your community association would be if you were fighting eviction and keeping people in your community. Jeff Rofest. There is something we can all do. Go to Baltimore War Memorial on May 13th at 2 p.m. to work for more affordable housing, some city money put into it, uh, bonds that can help tear down the vacant houses, and the biggest owner of the vacant houses is the city and the housing authority, of course. Uh, so the 2020 campaign will work on this problem, and we can all support it by going to the War Memorial on Saturday, May 13th at 2 p.m. Thank you very much. So I want to thank all of you. You just heard Jeff Singer, founder of Healthcare for the Homeless, now teaching the University of Maryland School of Social Work, Zafar Shah, attorney for the Public Justice Center, Althea Saunders-Renier, director of the Center for Working Families at Bon Secures Community Works, and Doug Donovan, who, along with Jean Marabella, wrote the series Dismissed that we're talking about here on the air uh, for the Baltimore Sun, investigative piece on housing courts in Baltimore. Good to have the four of you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. And we're taking a short break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Dan Siegel to talk about epigenetics and more. Don't go away.